At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the Word of God. Let's give thanks and pray. Our Father, thank you for your Word today. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us. And Father, this morning, as we would look to you for your grace and as we would look to you for assurance and for an understanding, of what you have done in our lives and how we know that we are your children, I pray that your spirit would give us that this morning. Bring it clearly to our minds, to our hearts, to our lives, that we are of you. And Father, I would pray this morning for those here who may not be born again. I would ask, Lord, this morning that as they hear of what you have done through Christ, that you would show them your grace and that they would believe, and that they would trust, that they would be saved even today. I pray that you would establish us in our faith, Lord, and that you would strengthen us to obey you, and that you would help us to overcome in all things. So, Lord, now speak through your word. Build us in Christ today. May Jesus increase and may we decrease. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, do you know how to tell if something has been remade, if it's been renewed, even if something has been reborn, do you know how to, how to understand and process that, that potential? From about the 19, or I'm sorry, the 1860s until the early 1900s, so right around the turn of the 20th century, in, in one particular area of the city of Detroit, there were more than 400 elegant Victorian-style mansions being built. And it was this, this neighborhood that was built up and grew. Maybe many of you have heard of this neighborhood, the Brush Park neighborhood. It was the premier neighborhood in the city of Detroit to live. Some of the most beautiful homes in all of the city were there. And it was a glorious place to be. But, but with the decline of the city of Detroit, with, with much of what happened in the earlier part of the 20th century, the city declined, the neighborhood itself began to deteriorate to the point of becoming a pretty bad eyesore. Buildings were abandoned, arsons occurred, lots of buildings and homes were left vacant, there was overgrowth, nobody was caring for the lawns or anything like that, so everything was overgrown. Graffiti was everywhere, crime rose, the, the neighborhood itself became a blight. It was one of the places you didn't want to live, even though some of the most beautiful homes were there. It wasn't a great place to be. Then around 2015, something new happened. 
a revitalization began to occur, a, a rebirth, if you will, of the Brush Park neighborhood. It began to gain momentum. It started with, with one individual uh, uh, celebrity on television, HGTV's Nicole Curtis. She began to rehab the Ransom Gillis house, and it got tons of national publicity. All of a sudden, these mansions were, were desirable. People wanted to preserve them and upkeep them and, and see the neighborhood flourish again. One apartment complex in the neighborhood that was in total disrepair, it didn't even have floors and, and a roof. It was just that gutted out. It was horrible. You'd think it would just be completely demolished. Well, no, they actually began to, to refurbish it, to renew it, to revitalize it. And today, it's been completely reno renovated. It's now filled with tenants. Uh, another... Uh, uh, company, another organization began to, to go in and purchase plots of land and, and homes. The Bedrock Real Estate Company began to dream about something called City Modern, is what they described it as. It was an ambitious development plan to restore eight and a half acres of that particular abandoned neighborhood, that, the, the abandoned land in that neighborhood, and turn it into 410 uh, apartments, townhomes, to be kind of the place to be. This This area, City Modern, has become a vibrant miniature city. Last September, the Detroit Free Press ran an article about the revitalization of the Brush Park neighborhood, and in it, they quoted one developer, Mike Eisen. He says, you look at the number of construction projects that are happening and are underway right now, and you can really feel the momentum. He said, we're at a point where the progress is becoming very, very visible. You see it, right? You, you, you know it. There is a renewal. There is a rebirth. There is a revitalization happening because of the effects that can be seen. What was once a decrepit mansion is now being restored and renewed and is a vibrant place to live again. The effects of that are there. So it, it causes me to ask a question, spiritually speaking, about how do we know if we have been born again? If if Salvation is what Jesus called being born again, being made new, being reborn by God. If that's something that is spiritual and that is something internal and it's even something that's invisible to some degree or another, how do we really know we've been born of God? How do we know, how do we have confidence that we have new life, that the renovation of the Holy Spirit happening in our hearts is actually occurring? Well, certainly there is the idea or the, the uh, sentiment out there that all human beings are, are children of God, at least in the sense that we are created by God, so all creation uh, falls under Him. But the Bible is very clear to tell us that, that only those who have been born anew, born again of God, are truly His children. John says it in his gospel in John chapter 1, he says this, he says, "...to all who did receive Him..." who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The point being is that God is the one who gives us new birth. New birth is God's work. He is the one who causes us to be born again. It's not of our own will, our own effort, our own righteousness, our own ability to all who received Him who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born of God. God is the one who causes us to be born again. He is the one who makes that happen in our lives. And so it's not a matter of our religious practice or our, our duty or our righteousness or any of that or even our mystical experiences, but the new birth is what makes you a child of God. 
It's God's work within you to give you a new heart, to renew your mind, to give you a new life that makes you a child of His. But again, I'll go back to my question. How do we know if someone has been born again? It's one thing to say that, but can we really see it? How do you know if you've been born again? How is the rebirth or the renewal seen? I want to take you back to John's letter here in 1 John chapter 5 and remind you what John's goal in writing this whole letter has been. He, he summarizes it very clearly and neatly in verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So to those of you who believe in Christ, those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God, I write to you these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. John is writing to them, and he's helping us in that as well, because he wants them to see and to know and to be assured, to have confidence that they have been born again by God, that they have new life, that they are in Christ. And in in our text this morning, as we conclude this series, John tells us, he wants us to see that that this new birth, this work of God in our hearts and lives to, to cause us to be born again, which is his work, it produces an effect in our lives. We can see the new birth, as it were, happening in us and around us and through us. John here teaches us three realities that are true of every person who has been born of God. So if you came this morning and you heard me ask that question, are you a child of God? And you went, well, I don't know. I want to help you see this morning from the Scripture how you can know, how you can have confidence that you've been born again. And these things are true of every born again born-of-God person. And if these things are missing, then it gives you a moment to, to pause and to stop and ask, have I truly been born again? And I will show you how you can receive the grace of God in Christ, how you can be born of God this morning. But I want you to know that these things aren't optional. We're not going to play choose-your-own-adventure here this morning, and you can pick like door one or three, but leave door two or four behind. There's only three points, so don't, don't worry about how many numbers I stated there. But these things are the evidence, they are concrete, they are the realities of what it means to be born of God. So, so just like new buildings and revitalized streets and growing businesses and increasing population and the flourishing of a community gives evidence of a revitalized neighborhood, these realities that John shows us here are true of the person who has been born of God. Have you been born of Him? Have you received the new birth? Let me show you the realities that are true if you have. These are, these are consequences of being born of God. They're the things that work themselves out, the evidence is there. The first one is this. If you've been born of God, you believe in Jesus. If you've been born of God, you believe in Jesus. And that sounds really obvious, right? That's like just Captain Obvious, duh, right? But is it? Is it truly that? What do we mean by that? Okay, go with me to 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 here. He says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So that's a very clear, linear just proposition. It's a statement right out there. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. We think, well, yeah, people believe in Jesus all the time, all over the place. I mean, like, he's some historical figure. He's out there. So, yeah, I... I can say I believe in Jesus, but what does that really do? How does that really matter or change anything at all? What John is stating here isn't just some sort of abstract, uh, generic, I believe in Jesus kind of thing. John, in the way he states this, 
in summarizing the whole of his letter here, is taking us back to some, some concrete realities. To say that Jesus is the Christ doesn't just mean that he exists, doesn't just mean that he was some sort of historical figure and you can take or leave whatever you'd like about his miracles, his death, his resurrection, whatever it is. To say Jesus is the Christ is to say something deep and profound about who Jesus is. To proclaim Jesus is the Christ is to say what the false teachers were not willing to say. In fact, to say what the false teachers actually denied. They denied that Jesus was the Christ. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, John says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. The false teachers were saying that Jesus was not the Christ, which means the inverse, the truth of it, that Jesus is the Christ. But again, what does that mean? What are we really saying? Well, one good practice for you when you read 1 John is to read it over and over and over again, but also to read it in conjunction with John's gospel, the story or the narrative of the life and the ministry and the work of Jesus. Read these two hands in hand. They're written hand in hand. They're written by the same author, and the way that John writes this letter to this church builds on and grows from what he has said about Jesus and his life. So to say Jesus is the Christ means to say something concrete and distinct about him. But what has is, what is John told us? What has the Scripture said about who Jesus is? Well, if you would just flip over to John chapter 1, in the introduction to his, his gospel narrative there, you'd find very clearly what he says or what he believes about what it means that Jesus is the Christ. He writes, In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the, light was, the, life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You can move down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17, for the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. There's a lot of things here just to, I could do a whole sermon on 1 John chapter 1, but John is trying to help us see here what it means to say that Jesus is the Christ. First of all, he tells us Jesus, the Word, was in the beginning. He is, he's eternal, and He, the Word, was with God. A sense of saying that He was God. That's what He says in the very next phrase. The Word was God. So eternal with the Father as God Himself. To say it this way, Jesus is fully and truly God in every way. Eternal with God. But then He goes on to say a little bit further, He's the creator of all things and He became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here's another reality about who Jesus is, that Jesus is fully and truly human. He became a man. He put on flesh and blood, and He dwelt among us. He lived among us. He displayed His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Son sent from the Father, bringing grace and truth, the Son bringing grace and truth to, to show us who God is, to make Him known. Jesus 
To proclaim Jesus is the Christ is to say Jesus is fully God, truly God. Jesus is fully man, truly God, or truly man. And he came, he was sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world. That's what John has proclaimed in 1 John. He said that Christ is the Savior of the world. And so in saying that, he is saying that Jesus has come and lived the perfect righteous life that we couldn't. That he's died on the cross for our sins as a sacrificial atonement for us. And he was raised to life again on the third day. Jesus himself said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. So to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ isn't just some throwaway sentence. It has some deep, if I can use the phrase doctrine, some deep truth and teaching to it. To be born again, you have to believe these truths. You have to believe that Jesus is fully and truly God. You must believe that Jesus is fully and truly man. You must believe that Jesus was sent from the Father for us and our salvation. You must believe that Jesus lived the perfect, sinless life. He died sacrificial death on our behalf, and He was raised to life again on the third day. Those are the, the ground realities of what it means to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. Those who are born again come to see by faith who Jesus is, and they have believed and banked their life upon Him. Remember, that's what John says in John chapter 1, all who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. You must believe those doctrinal truths, those, those profound realities about who Christ is. Now, some might say, whoa, 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 okay, this sounds like religious talk, okay? I've heard that Christianity is like a relationship, not so much a religion, and you're talking about doctrine. Like, that's religious stuff. Like, I want the relationship part of it. I understand what you mean by that. Yes, there is a must be a vibrant intimacy and relationship with Christ. We, we talk with Him, we speak with Him through prayer, we draw near to the throne of grace, but Christianity is not just some sort of subjective relationship with you and your invisible friend, Jesus. It's not just some sort of pick and choose how you'd like it. The concrete doctrine, the established teaching of the Word of God shows us who Jesus is. And we must believe that teaching. We must believe the Word of God. It's an evidence of being born again that we have believed it. Now, what I'm not saying is that you have to go and get a master's degree in theology. You don't have to run down to Moody Theological Seminary after the service and enroll for the next term to be born again. Not at all. But you have to embrace the basic teaching of the Word of God. There's truth here. Our minds must be renewed by the truth. What you believe must correspond with what Scripture teaches. Let me help you think of it in this way. What does it mean, you might make the proclamation, or I might make the proclamation, Ford Motor Company make superior vehicles. Now, just, this is a hypothetical exper you know, experiment, okay? Some of you, I know, you can't go there, but, but let's just play along on this, okay? If you're employed to another manufacturer, just go with it, okay? Ford, uh, Ford Motor Company makes superior vehicles. That's the statement you believe. Well, what does that really look like? How do you, okay, well, you would believe some facts, right? That the, the Ford Motor Company was founded by Henry Ford, that it, it, its, its headquarters is in Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, you, you would have to believe, if 
Ford Motor Company is a superior company, that its employees and manufacturing is of the highest quality. It's a, it's a cut above the rest. What they, what they engineer and design is the best. The, the interiors and the exteriors is just superior in every way. And you've actually got to be driving a Ford Motor Company vehicle. Maybe not the Pinto, but like you've got to have a Ford if you're going to say, I believe that Ford is the best, right? Otherwise, you're just a hypocrite. And if we catch you driving around with a Fiat and you say Ford is the best, like, no, you don't believe that. Here it is with Christ. We have to believe the concrete affirmations, the doctrine, the teaching of who He has said He is, what the Scripture reveals about Christ. That's why applying yourself to the teaching of the Bible is so important. You can't just believe whatever you'd like and, and think that you're a child of God. This is orthodoxy. True doctrine. So, those who have been born again, they have believed that Jesus is the Christ, truly God, truly man, sent for us and for our salvation. He lived, died, and rose again for us. Have you believed that? Have you believed that? It's it's evidence, it's a reality that you have been born again of God. But that's not where it stops. That's just good head knowledge that, that doesn't form our hearts. It changes us. It must. But, but the Christian religion, the Christian faith isn't just a head knowledge thing. And so John moves on to the second reality. It's this. If you've been born of God, then you love God's children. If you've been born of God, if you've been given new life, then you love God's children. So he says in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and... Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. There's that phrase again, born of God, born of Him. Whoever loves the Father, so I say I love God, I love the Father, loves. Okay, this is a definitive act. They love whoever, anyone who has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God. So here here it is, John just setting it up. If you love God, then you by necessity, love his children. You love the family. This is the logic of John. This is the obedience test here. There's a bit of a play on words here in verse, verses 1 and 2. Everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ has been, and I'll use some old English here, has been begotten of God. That's a Greek term underneath it. Begotten of God. And everyone who loves the begetter, this is how John, John doesn't use the normal Greek word for father. He uses the term begetter, the one who gives life. Everyone who has, believes in Jesus has been begotten of God, and everyone who loves the begetter loves whoever has been begotten of Him. John just wants us to see the flow of love here, the flow of how God works, is causing us to be born again by His grace. So simply put, whoever loves God, whoever's been born of God, loves God, and they love His children. But again, how do we know we love the family of God? How how do I really know that I love the the children of God? This is what he says in verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God. So here it is. Here's the answer. When we love God and obey His commandments. Now, it sounds a little bit like circular reasoning. Like, wait, okay, I was just looking for, uh, here's how I know I love the, the children by being nice to them, helping old ladies cross the street shoveling my neighbor's walk. You know, that's how I know. Like, John doesn't give us a list of things. He takes us back to God Himself. You know you love God's children because you love God. And if you truly love God, then it, then it displays, it shows itself out in your life, and you obey His commands. What does obeying God's commands have to do with loving others? 
Well, the reality is that when we listen to and receive God's commands, we find that they are commands of love, love for him and love for one another. That's how Jesus summarized the law. The law, all of it, the commandments of God are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Or it could take us to the Ten Commandments themselves, the Ten Words. I think just let's just think of the second part of those Ten Commandments, the commands that have to do with how we relate to one another. You know, they are the do not commandments, right? So he starts the Ten Commandments, the sixth one, I'm sorry, the, the fifth one is honor your father and mother. That's a command of love. It's love for God-given authority in your life. Or, or the next commandment, do not murder. Okay, here's the don't. But that's a command of love as well. It's to love the lives, the lives, the, the, the physical lives of other, other human beings. Or the commandment, do not commit adultery. That's the love of the covenant relationships of others. Or do, or do not steal. That's the love for the belongings of others, to protect them. Don't take from their belongings, but you love them enough to let them keep their belongings. Or do not bear false witness. That's the love of the reputation of others. Or the Tenth Commandment, which in so many ways captures all of the commandments, do not covet. That is the love for just the general well-being of others, their station in life, their circumstances, your own station in life and circumstances. To, to not covet is just say, I love you and where God has you, and I love where God has me, and we're good with that. Even when you take the first four commandments, they're all love for God. Don't have any other gods before Him. Don't, don't make Him a created idol. Honor His name. Revere it. Remember the Sabbath. Rest. Be under His grace and His time frame. So when John says that we love God and obey His commandments, back here in 1 John, we have to think practically like the Ten Commandments and see that we have clear practical directives about what it means to love others, it's to obey His commands. For this is the love of God, verse 3, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Keeping His commandments are loving God. And you say, well, that, that seems like a tall order. That seems like pretty, pretty difficult. But John here says they're not burdensome. They're not heavy. And the reason is that he's thinking about the religions of the world. He's thinking about everything else operates. The religions of the world operate with go do more, go try harder, go deeper. Like the religions of the world can be categorized into two, two areas. It's either legalism, do more stuff and perform, check all the boxes, or it's some sort of mysticism. Have the right experiences. Immerse yourself in yourself and, and feel it. And both of those are unattainable. We will never get there. But that's the way the world teaches us. And those are the heavy burdens, right? Because they're never satisfied. We never get home. We never reach the goal. We're always striving, always straining, always going for more and more and more. And rescue is just out of our reach. But the commandments of God are love. Love Him and love others. And that's what Jesus said. Come to me who all who are weary and heavy laden of trying to fulfill rules. Come to me who are all of you who are weary and heavy laden. I'm trying to have that mystical experience that's just out of your reach. Come to me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The commandments of God are not burdensome. They're not heavy because they're commandments of love. Love to him, love to others. 
So this is the evidence of obedience, the test of obedience. It's a result. The consequence of being born again is that we love his family. We love God. We love his children. If you're born again of God, you will love him. You will love his children. If you're born again of God, you believe in Jesus. So we have a doctrine. We have an attitude. It goes out, and we have a victory. And this is the third result of being born of God. The third reality is that if you've been born of God, you have overcome the world. If you've been born of God, you have overcome the world. And I know many of you go like, I don't feel like I've overcome anything today. Like, how is that true? Look with me at verse 4. It says, everyone who has been born of God. Okay, so there it is one more time. Everyone who has been born of God. Three times in this passage, John has said, this is what it means to be born of God. We believe in Jesus. We love his children. Thirdly, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. What does that look like? What does that mean? What he's speaking of here is something that's supernatural. It's something that, that is essential. Jesus himself said, you must be born again. So this is, this is necessary. If you long to see the kingdom of God and receive eternal life, you must be born again by the power of God through what Jesus has done for you. And if you have been born again, the evidence of that is overcoming the world. Or to say it another way, it's to have victory in your life. Notice here, this isn't a conditional statement, as if he's saying everyone who has been born of God tries to overcome the world, or everyone who has been born of God might overcome the world. No, this is, this is a clear, emphatic statement, a reality. Everyone who has been born of God will overcome the world. The, word, the verb here, overcome, is in the present tense, and it speaks of an ongoing, active victory that's happening right now. This is what's happening in your life. I know some of you are like, okay, time out. (laughs) I don't feel like overcoming anything. Like I haven't, like my overcoming, my victory, like really tiny, not at all. Is it there? What is he talking about? How do we overcome the world? Maybe it will help us to see and understand what John means by the world when he talks about it. What does John mean when he says we overcome the world? Is he talking about us conquering all of our foes, like we defeat Russia and China and the political entities of the world that we don't like? Is that what he's after? Is that the world that he's talking about? No, it's not what John is talking about. Again, if you go back in 1 John just a little bit to chapter 2, verse 16, John is describing what the world is. Chapter 2, uh, verse 15, he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here's the description, he describes it this way. He says, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So this is what John means when he says we overcome the world. Let me break it down for us just a little bit more. He speaks of the desires of the flesh. Another way to say that is the works of the flesh. When we desire the things of this world, the way Paul described it in Galatians 5 is the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The list of sins goes on. He said these are the, the works of the flesh. These are the desires of the flesh. Our Our fallen sinful nature, our desires are for sin, for the world, 
for our own pleasures and pride and power and possessions. John says, that's what you overcome. The desires of the world, sin of the world, the lust of the flesh. Furthermore, he he speaks of the desires, the lust of the eyes, those covetous, sinful longings and cravings that are activated through through what we see, through, through porn and addiction to porn and watching and craving and binging evil and, and letting our eyes be enticed with the things of this world. John says we go to battle there. It's not the love of God or, or the pride of life. The things in the world here, the, the boastful pride of life is the essence of that. It's the arrogant reliance and boast on who we are and what we have and how great we are in this world. We kind of Puff out our chest and say, look at me and all I've got and all I am. John says, this is what the world is. These are the desires of the world, and they're all passing away. But everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. What he's saying is that we go to battle against the things of this world in our hearts, our sinful desires and passions and lust and pride, and we make progress. We overcome. We see our patterns of sinfulness brought into submission under Christ. We see our longings for the things of this world dissipate and our longings for Christ increase. We see our affections for this world and all that it offers diminish and our desire and delight in the glory of God and all that He is in Christ for us abounds and increases. That's what happens when you're born of God. To put it simply, you become like Christ. That's what the Bible calls sanctification, being transformed more and more and more into the image of Christ. How do we do that? Well, this is what he says. This is the victory. Now, here's how it's worked out. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world our faith. Notice there he doesn't say our willpower, our stringent devotion to religious practices and following the rules, our mystical experiences. No, he takes it right back to faith. We trust and bank our lives on God. We trust and bank our lives on all that Christ has done for us. We toss our lives at him and all of our sin and all of our failure and who he is, and we say, you alone can save me. You alone can change me. You alone can bring out the renewal and the rebirth in my life. And he supplies his spirit to us to change us and to transform us to make us new. As we behold the image of Christ, as we behold Jesus, we become like Jesus. So we trust his works. The Spirit works within us, and we're made more and more like Christ. Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. Or to say it this way, everyone who is born of God is being made more like Christ. And we do that by faith, by trusting the superior power and work of Jesus on our behalf. So John concludes this with a question. It's a rhetorical question, but it's a question nonetheless. Who is it that overcomes the world? Who is it who has the victory? It's the one. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That is to say, the only ones who overcome the world 
are the ones who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you see what John did here? He tricked us. He brought it all the way back around to the beginning. Faith, trusting Christ and who He is. That's, that's how we are. That's how we overcome. It's our faith in Christ. The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, sent from God. The one who's banked their life on Him. It's the one who will overcome. John is making here Christianity really, really simple and yet really, really profound. How are we rescued from our sin? How are we saved? By the, gra- by, by the grace of God, which we receive through faith. We trust and bank our lives on Jesus. And as we're born again, it shows we believe that Jesus is the Christ. It, it begins to reveal itself in our love for one another, for God's children, and in a growing statement and growing reality of becoming more and more and more like Jesus in our thoughts, in our actions, in our attitudes, in our affections, in every part of our lives. But it all comes back to the start. Believing Christ, trusting Him. So let me ask you, are these realities evident in your life? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Christ? That's evidence being born again. Do you love God's children, obeying His commandments and loving one another? It's evidence of being born again. Are you growing in Christ-likeness, overcoming the world? It's evidence of being born again. And where you see those, those things which are necessary, they display clearly are being born again. Where you see those things, you can be encouraged. You can be assured. You can rest in what God has done. And where those things are not showing up, you shouldn't leave here this morning in despair. The good news is you can go right to Jesus with your, with your need, with your sin, with your, un, with your unbelief, with your brokenness. You can go right to Jesus and say, these things aren't showing up. Make me new again. Give me new life. Because the Scripture says everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in Him will receive eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. So if you don't see the evidence of that, go to Him this morning. Trust Christ with all you have and receive His gift of grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for uh, the truth of Your Word and the impact that, that Your Word has in our lives. And Lord, this morning we ask that you would show to us and confirm to us and encourage us with the evidence that we are born again, help us to see the effect of that in our own lives, our belief in who Christ is, our love for one another, and in our progress and our growth in Christ's likeness. And Father, where that evidence isn't appearing, would you give us grace to repent and come back to Christ again and and to trust Him, to not try and earn our way to You or experience our way to You, but to come to Christ and to trust Him again in faith. Work the miracle of new birth within us today. We thank You for Your truth and Your Word. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.